And mm. that's the kind of stuff that gets its way into the courtroom. It's the kind of stuff that is making up these billion-dollar settlements completely based on bogus science. Uh, terrible stuff. Um, we actually wanted to bring on Ashley Baker of the Committee for Justice. She's a, a legal researcher, and he's been looking at this stuff from all angles. So let's play the interview. Jamie, play the clip. Consumer Choice Radio. I'm here with Ashley Baker. She's the Director of Public Policy at the Committee for Justice. She focuses on the Supreme Court, technology, regulatory policy, and judicial nominations. Her writing has appeared in Fox News, USA Today, The Boston Globe, Law 360, The Hill, Real Clear Politics, American Spectator, and elsewhere. She's an active member of the Federalist Society, where she serves as a contributor and a member of the Regulatory Transparency Project's Cyber and Privacy Working Group. Ashley, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. So we have um, a lot of questions to get through. Um, I wanted to reach out to you and include you in the show because you follow many legal issues specifically and I think have a very good take that many of our listeners could definitely um, benefit from. So I just kind of want to start off very simply. What, what is the most important thing that you think people should know about lawsuit abuse in general? Um, in general, I, I would talk a little bit about the recent trends first um, and then about how it you know affects consumers um, kind of in, quantitatively as well. But um, in recent years, we've seen, seen a huge upward trend in lawsuit abuses. And I think there are several causes for the increase in the number of lawsuits. But one trend um, that I think is particularly notable um, is what could be called regulation through litigation. Um, so like in other words, um, regulatory activity has slowed down due to lack of agency rulemaking um, in the Trump administration. And also, you know, Congress is not um, passing much, you know, policy right now. Um, so instead, a lot of activists are turning to the courts um, and they've kind of seized and weaponized our court system um, through various types of lawsuits. You know, you've probably heard in the news about the um, climate change lawsuits, um, opioid lawsuits, um, intellectual property claims, um, and also increasingly data privacy lawsuits, which I think is a huge area, um, which we can get to in a bit. Um, but I would point out that a lot of these lawsuits, so there are, a lot of them are ultimately um, unsuccessful, but still this unnecessary litigation, it really, the litigation costs really affect everyone. Um, for example, a Chamber of Commerce Institute for a Legal Reform study found that the U.S. tort system takes a huge bite out of the economy. So in 2016, it consumed 200 sorry, $429 billion out of the economy. And that's about $3,000 per household, 3,000. So that, that's a lot out of your bank account just because of this lawsuit abuse. Um, also, I mean, specifically related to the um, environment litigation, 89% of business owners who have been polled have said that um, their state's litigation environment will um, is likely to impact important business decisions. And, so I think okay. that's pretty huge. And when it comes to the, you mentioned before, the climate change ones, the opioid trials, sort of what are the more egregious aspects of, of some of these larger cases that you've been following? Um, I mean, so, I mean, there are a lot of egregious examples of um, lawsuits, and some of them are pretty silly. I mean, we had, there's one lawsuit um, in the Ninth Circuit recently that the judge um, dismissed as being, you know, just completely ridiculous. Um, the kids' climate change lawsuit, if you've heard about that one, um, 
some of the claims it made was that the kids or example were harmed because they couldn't snow in the winter because there wasn't enough snow because of climate change and just the, um, you know, the claims are ridiculous. Um, so some of these are pretty frivolous. And I mean, a common theme through a lot of these is there's not necessarily harm to consumers um, and, or there's no way to demonstrate it. Um, or, you know, in the case of climate change suits, um, you know, there's also the Exxon suit in New York. And essentially they were trying to claim that Exxon knew that climate change was coming and didn't tell other people <laughs> about it um, and therefore were liable. Um, so their theories of liability are just a little bit absurd. Um, but the Exxon suit did not um, turn out well for the plaintiffs. Um, it came down in Exxon's favor ultimately. Um, so like I said, a lot of these, you know, a lot of these lawsuits don't work out in the long run, but, um, you know, it does take a huge toll on the economy and on consumers and also on product offerings and a lot of other, you know, aspects of consumer choice. You talked about legislating from the bench. Is that more on behalf of some of the judges involved in this? Is it more on prosecutors or uh, general plaintiff's attorneys? Like, how is this kind of working out? I mean, legislating from the bench is a term I use more so to describe activist judges, um, particularly in federal courts. It's a little bit of a different issue. That's when, you know, they're making rulings, you know, to design for certain policy outcomes. And that can happen in these cases. Um, and it does happen in, in a lot of them, actually. Um, but more so, you know, it, it starts with the um, it, it's really a tort reform issue. It starts with um our, you know, the U.S. tort system, which is um, really horribly ineffective at compensating consumers who are harmed, um, and these frivolous lawsuits coming from plaintiffs' attorneys. And if you have um, a lot of examples recently, you know, we've talked about on this program some of the more frivolous lawsuits dealing with the Impossible Burger at Burger King kind of being cooked alongside the other meat, and uh, they're not really providing that vegan-friendly option. I mean, there's there's tons of examples of this. Are, are there any that come to your mind of, as to just on its face frivolous or just outright ridiculous? Um, there's one case actually in Texas that's a trade secret misappropriation case, um, and which we're actually, so I've actually written on this case, and as is my colleague, and we're, we're filing an amicus brief. Um, so the charge, um, the technology that was allegedly misappropriated um, was never, it never even existed, and the other company was still awarded $760 million, 740, I'm sorry. $740 million, and the technology wasn't actually even developed. Um, it was, you know, the magic of litigation. Somehow this, you know, <laughs> happens. And what about uh, the role of science in some of these? Because I, I know that there was a an article, I think it was yesterday, by Radley Balco um, over at Washington Post talking about how, and this is in criminal cases, of course, but the standard that we use for scientific evidence is somehow shifting in the legal system? Is there sort of a push to include better science? Or are we figuring out what actually works? I mean, what is the kind of danger as well, perhaps, if, if you have bad science that enters the courtroom? Uh, I mean, that's kind of a, a question more related to evidence. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, that's really related more to the um, environmental suits. I think a bigger um, problem, though, than, you know, than the use of science and also because of the frivolous lawsuits, which, you know, are newsworthy. Um, but more commonly, we're seeing um, litigation abuse through things such as private rights of action um, and just these massive class actions for consumers that um, where there's not necessarily consumer harm and then it benefits the attorneys and not the consumers. Um, the Equifax breach is 
I mean, there was harm in that Equifax breach, I would um, argue, but the court awarded $80 million to the attorneys and, you know, those who still want their $125 are guaranteed are really unlikely to get it at this point. Oh, man. And I was one of these people. So I don't know if I'll get that check. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so it goes. All right. Well, um, in, in terms of your daily work um, at the Committee for Justice, what are some of the kind of recent cases or trends that you are studying more specifically or, or what are you more interested in in your work? Um, in my work, more privacy right now is a really big issue. Um, we see a lot of you know states privacy bills that include a private right of action, um, and that's a huge issue. And one of the major elements of you know the debate over a federal privacy bill is whether or not it should have a you know private right of action. And one way to um, solve some of the problems with litigation abuse on privacy issues is if we were to have federal legislation, which I think is needed regardless. Um, if it included federal preemption, but did not have a private right of action, I think that would be the way to go. Um, but yeah, and just as I said, regulation through litigation, now that there's less rulemaking um, at the moment. Um, uh, yeah. Is that very problematic for, I guess, um, the Trump administration when it's looking to staff or I guess the better term is to appoint a lot of these judges? Is that something that's also being kept in mind? I mean, I, I know you're probably more a party to some of these conversations or, or kind of understandings about what's going on. Is Are people aware now that this is a general problem, that there's kind of all this stuff being done on the back end and not by the, the judges themselves? Um, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it's always been done from the back end as well. I mean, anytime there's a good opportunity for, you know, some of these firms to kind of swoop in. But I mean, the judges that the, you know, administration has appointed, they're, you know, all textualist. And that doesn't really lend itself to, you know, these um, lawsuits that don't necessarily, um, don't necessarily have, you know, harm or whatever, you know, is in the statute. Um, so that's, you know, that's not really, I wouldn't say that factors into um, anything. And also, you know, th a lot of those are Article Three judges. Um, one interesting, you know, recently, um, the Ninth Circuit held that um, that Article Three standing, um, that there was a suit against Facebook um, under an Illinois law. Um, and the Ninth Circuit ruled that they also had federal standing um, under that law, um, because it demonstrated harm, which is um, a little bit of a stretch of the law itself. But you know, confined to Illinois, the problem is the actual law. So like a, a lot of this is not the judges, it's the laws. Um, I mean, ultimately if the judges misinterpret it as, as well, or if they have their agendas, but um, we have some particularly, particularly bad court system um, in some ways that is more conducive to this. And is that more seen in sort of these larger class action lawsuits, like you mentioned around Equifax, just bigger issues around maybe who gets to become part of the class or how people are determined or who has standing? Right. And who has standing? Yes. Um, I mean, generally speaking, so one example that I think that sums this up really well is I'm not sure if you've heard of the um, Biometric Privacy Act in Illinois. Um, so BIFA has a very expansive private right of action. So it's a 2008 law and it's um, it defines biometrics extremely broadly. Um, so, you know, a, your picture and your photo ID is, you know, facial geometry. So it's a biometric identifier or your fingerprint. Um, it's not necessarily, you know, high tech facial recognition. This is over a decade old. Um, and also has, um, so like what makes it really powerful is that a technical violation of the notice and consent requirements um, is enough to constitute standing. 
Um, so in other words, there doesn't have to be, you know, harm to the consumer. There just has to be a infraction of the law. And this is really about use of data. This isn't about data security um, or about government surveillance. This is how companies use data for commercial purposes. Um, and I, I think it's important to differentiate between those issues. Um, but if, you know, a, if a company uses um, data such as, you know, Facebook, um, Ring, whatever else, without um, getting affirmative consent, then they get, are, you automatically have standing under this. Um, it doesn't have to actually affect the consumer in any other way than, it, you know, the company use you know, one data point. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with Ashley Baker, Director of Public Policy at the Committee for Justice. Here is another question for you. In what cases can we sort of use litigation to protect our privacy? Because I know there are these privacy bills that have been introduced in places like California. They're talking about them in New York. You know, are there good circumstances or examples whereby we could use litigation to protect our privacy, whether it be against the government or, or private companies? Yeah, I mean, well, I'd first point out, like, we're... You know, I think there obviously should be a legal remedy whenever consumers are harmed, but um, it, litigation shouldn't be the enforcement mechanism that, you know, protects our privacy itself. I mean, it's more of a remedy once your privacy has been, been violated. So, I mean, that's the problem with like the, you know, the law in Illinois, for example, its sole enforcement um, mechanism is the private right of actions, private class actions. Um, so that shouldn't, you know, that in and of itself shouldn't um, protect their privacy. Um, we need stronger privacy rules, a federal rule um, particularly. Um, and then, you know, like I said, this is very different if we're talking about um, government suits and with the government surveillance, I'm ha happy to talk about that as well. We have issues with the third party doctrine, for example, um, after Carpenter versus the United States. And in your role at the Committee for Justice are, are is basically your group are you putting out different briefs? Are you attaching yourselves to different lawsuits? Sort of what, what does the organization do day to day? Um, our, the most recent two cases we've um, focused on, one which we filed an amicus brief in last month, um, was, was in um, Google versus Oracle. And then there's the Texas case, for example, that I um, just mentioned. I also um, have done a lot of um, writing and podcasts and such related to Carpenter versus United States. We joined an amicus brief for that as well. Um, so what is, what is that, that case, if I could ask? What is the Carpenter case? I'm sorry? What is the Carpenter case you just mentioned? Um, Carpenter versus United States, it was a case from um, two years ago, two terms ago, in which um, that cha challenged the um, third-party doctrine is the self-site location data um, case about whether or not um, whether or not your precise self-site location information that's transmitted by your phone every you know couple of minutes, couple of seconds um, is falls in the third-party doctrine, or if it's a you know if it's a um, search for Fourth Amendment purposes when you know when police obtain that data. Um, the court ultimately ruled that it did constitute a search um, and was a violation of the Fourth Amendment. But just in Illinois, for example, um, one thing you can't have there is like nest security cameras can't have facial recognition features. And you know, there are plenty of other privacy concerns with um, nest and with um, ring. And I, I understand that, but I do think, you know, at the end of the day, the consumer should be able to decide what the trade-offs are. Um, 
another example I actually found the other day. I didn't know this. So um, you remember the robo dog that was at CES or something? The Sony's robo dog that was um, there a few few years ago. The robotic dog is not allowed in Illinois because it uses facial recognition so that it recognizes its owners. So if you live in Illinois, you cannot have a robotic dog. Oh, I think wow. it's ridiculous to have a robotic dog instead of a real dog. But you should be able to have one if you want one. Well, great. Uh, Ashley Baker, thanks so much for taking your time. How can the audience uh, follow you and some of your written work? Hey, you can follow me on our website. It's www.committeeforjustice.org. Um, or my Twitter handle is and Ashley says. Um, or you can find Committee for Justice on Twitter as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ashley. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you.